From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It started with a simple question. Who would want to become a police officer right now? Getting the answer led CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry to a training program in Aurora. The class she's followed just graduated. It takes a special person to step up and heed this calling. It's not done for money or fame. You will see and experience the worst and best of people in this profession. Allison shares her reporting with us. Then recycling in space, reducing space junk and harnessing material that's already in orbit. And later, the story of a once unknown British band that made its North American debut in Colorado, and according to a new biography, broke the sound barrier in rock and roll. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There was a graduation ceremony this past week for would-be police officers. It takes a special person to step up and heed this calling. It's not done for money or fame. You will see and experience the worst and best of people in this profession. You will be the hero that runs to the sound of gunfire and not away from it. That speaker addressed 13 cadets, and our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, has followed them for the last few months, attending some of their classes at Community College of Aurora. And today she joins us to share what she's learned, what has surprised her. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. And let's start with why you did this. What made you want to spend so much time reporting on this training program? Yeah, you know, this is a really large beat, the justice beat, Ryan. We have to make coverage decisions every day about what to focus on. But after George Floyd's murder last year, we decided to narrow in on policing. And that is how policing's been done, what it used to be like, the calls for change, and what that change means for people. And I had this idea to look at also who was deciding to become police officers at this moment in time as Mm. part of that. You know, this is a time where, frankly, these jobs have become harder and more dangerous. And I stumbled across this night class at the Community College of Aurora, and they let me be uh, part of it and embed in their 10-month program. And there we are. And there we are. Yeah. And and you mentioned that this is a dangerous time for police. Say just a few more words about that. Yeah. And in 2020, there were more assaults and murders of police nationally than the year before. And, and that includes 4,000 more officers assaulted than in 2019. That's a, that's a national number. In Colorado, so far this year, two officers have been fatally shot while doing their jobs. With all of this going on, what stood out to you about this next generation of police officers? You know, the thing that stood out to me was that this was not a monolith group of people. You know, these cadets didn't have a single one or even two reasons for doing this. Some of them made the decision to become a cop because of the police reform movement. Some of them fell into it after trying a bunch of other things. Others say they just wanted to help people in a really hands-on way, that they wanted to be the good guy. So that stood out to me. You know, they really had varied reasons for going into this much work. Well, let's listen to the first report you filed in this series. 10 air squats, 10 push-ups, 
These want-to-be police officers are working out on a hot summer night in a parking lot in Aurora. It's not an easy workout, even for those in the best of shape. Beyond nighttime burpees amid the cicadas, the cadets have been put through all sorts of rigorously stressful situations. They've been shown homicide photos and role-played through mass shootings and domestic violence calls. Kevin Watts is an instructor at the academy and a federal officer. I think there, there's more of an acknowledgement now that this is a difficult and complex field. And there is no simple one-dimensional approach to doing things. Try as we might to make it that way, it's not. This is the Colorado Community College of Aurora's Police Academy. The 13 young people enrolled in this program decided to become police officers in the middle of the 2020 summer of raucous protests against police violence. And at a time when the risks for police are increasing. In my community, you don't take this path and you take a different one. Kristen Hynonen is a black 23-year-old from Lakewood. She said she wants to be a force for change in policing. Others say they wanted to do something to help the community. All say they are doing this because they want to help. Maiwand Ahmadzai came to the United States from Afghanistan. I really do like helping people. I think it, it's part of my culture. The landscape for officers right now has changed since the George Floyd protests last year. Laws have been passed that put additional scrutiny and rules on law enforcement officers. Loveland Deputy Police Chief Eric Stewart spoke to this in his leadership classes. There's an assault on law enforcement nationally, but there's an assault on law enforcement in this state for whatever reason these legislators are, I don't know what they're trying to do. So again, for you guys to to still want to come in and do this job, um, I applaud you. Stewart warned the cadets about new police reform laws in Colorado that invite more scrutiny and personal liability. But for the most part, the students said they weren't worrying about it. Doing the right thing really, really, really costs you sometimes, and sometimes it hurts. You just, you just can't care. Jay O'Bara, a 29-year-old living in Longmont, says he feels called to be a police officer. I can go to bed with broken ribs sleep just fine knowing I did the right thing. I can go to bed dirt poor as long as I did the right thing. When it comes to what these cadets are learning, some of the old school police academy trappings haven't changed. The biggest thing I think that could trip you up as a cop is not knowing when you can do what. But in other ways, the curriculum is evolving to meet public cries for reform. The Community College of Aurora is among the first police academies in Colorado to tackle both emotional intelligence and diversity, equity, and inclusion in their trainings. Many of the adjunct professors, all of whom are current cops, spoke personally about their experiences. It's mentally tough. Sheridan police officer Bruce Williams told cadets he gets called the N-word every day. I'm driving to the jail and my prisoner's in the back just going at it. I don't say anything to him, so I have to take it. So you're going to get this night in, night out at this job, probably for the the whole duration of your career. Professors talk to the cadets about knowing themselves well enough to recognize when they're not in the headspace to deal with a stressful situation on the job, and to be comfortable telling their colleagues when it's time to step back. Colorado's new law makes it a crime for officers to stand by and watch misconduct. Federal officer Kevin Watts urged cadets to give their colleagues permission to intervene if something feels off. Get used to doing that so that that, there's there's no question when you're in the field. 
and nobody wants to step on your toes, like, ah, I'm not really sure if I should stop. That's not okay, but I don't want to be that guy. If you give them permission in the beginning, that's cleared up. All of this work doesn't mean these cadets will necessarily have a job after they leave the program. Most of them already have applications scattered around the state, and wherever they land, these students say they're ready to embrace this changed world around them. And we'll hear more from those cadets a bit later, but Allison Sherry, indeed one thing that stood out to me listening to that story is how different the messages are that these cadets get from different instructors. Yeah, it's true. I think it's like a microcosm, and I think that's how it's going to be for the young officers when they actually get to the police agencies they're applying for. You know, They're going to be around the old school people who are more defensive about the current climate right now, and there's going to be others inside who are applauding some of the changes and saying, hey, this is what it is. Let's all try our best under the circumstances. It's, you know, it's probably not like other workforces, but policing is just under so much more scrutiny right now. What did the cadets themselves themselves have to say about the changes in policing, what some have called reforms. Yeah, you know, I thought this was so interesting. Down to a person I talked to, none of them were really afraid of the police reform movement, the new use of force rules, the universal use of body cameras, the notion of Black Lives Matter. None of them seemed to be, you know, saying anything that they, you know, none of them really disagreed with any of that. They seemed pretty open to the fact also that they need emotional help from time to time. And that's really part of the police reform laws. You know, you can be charged now criminally with failure to intervene. So if you don't step in when a colleague's committing wrongdoing on the job, you yourself can be held liable. So they all seem to be pretty open to the fact that they need to be tuned into their emotional health and their good health and good health is part of being a good police officer. I will say a number of them mentioned the possibility of being sued. You know, right now, um, qualified immunity was something the legislature tackled and it's easier now to sue cops directly. And these cadets are, are you know, very, they feel that that's going to be a reality every single day. And I think they're worried about that, but they weren't worried about the overall reform movement. All right, more with our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, what she learned following Cops in the Making in Aurora. And now the second of Allison's two stories. It was a searing hot Saturday in July in an unshaded parking lot in East Denver, and a dozen police academy cadets from the Community College of Aurora were learning how to maneuver in retired police cruisers. Hi, so you have 58 with four cones is a 106. These cadets have been so busy juggling full-time jobs and their police training that the only time I could find to really talk to them was while they stood around waiting for their turns in driving practice. <laughs> That cone had a good life. We'll have a talking to when Victor Dominguez Ramirez is the student the other cadets gently tease for always being right in class and for scoring the highest on the tests. Our director hasn't said who the best student is yet, but I don't know. A lot of a lot of the students think it's me. We'll see. All right, I'm not gonna jump ahead. <laughs> Ramirez says he just likes school. In college, he started out wanting to become a therapist. But he decided he wanted to do something with less time behind a desk, something more active, but a job that helped people all the same. Yeah, I get to be there if anyone uh, is in dire need of help, and then I get to engage with other people. I, one thing that I, I've really appreciated so far is every single day is something different. When Ramirez graduated last year, at the height of the pandemic lockdown, most police agencies weren't hiring, and he didn't get any bites on applications. So he did what he'd done for years, 
go help at his dad's construction company. My parents, they helped me a lot through college and financially and, you know, morally. And um, so I, I felt like only working with him would pay him back. After doing a little research, Ramirez discovered this night school at the Community College of Aurora, where he could continue to work full-time, like the other cadets, and get his police officer certification. He has found everything about the academy fascinating. For example, like photography or taking fingerprints off of evidence, um, those classes are a lot of fun, and I was like a little bit attracted to those <laughs> professions as well. Uh, we took a class on SWAT, and I SWAT seems like fun. <laughs> Cadet Kristen Hynonen wants to keep it a little simpler. Out of the whole academy, these driving exercises are what she loved the most. Hynonen wants to ultimately be a traffic cop, because that's how most people encounter police. She wants the public, especially people of color, to have positive police experiences. If I can stop somebody from being scared of being pulled over by just maybe the color of my skin or how I act, maybe that's what I want to do. Hynonen grew up in Lakewood and, as a black woman, watched last summer's George Floyd protests. She called them hard to watch because she didn't agree with the property destruction, but she empathized with the anger. It partially inspired her to put in an application at the academy. We take people's liberties away from them, that we can do that. They're holding police officers to a higher standard than they've ever been held before. And I think if you want to become an officer, that's the standard you need to be at. And if you can't, then you shouldn't be an officer. When she does become an officer, Hynonen doesn't want to always see people on their worst days. I don't want to be like that. I want it to be like, you have a flat tire, let me come help you. You're broken down on the highway, let me put my lights on, see what's going on, call you a tow truck. I don't want me to show up on your worst day. You know, obviously in some cases I will, but I don't want that to be the main source of my job. All of the cadets talk about how much they hope to help the communities they'll someday work in. Maiwand Ahmedzai wants to help people in America, mostly because he didn't have the opportunity to do it in his home country of Afghanistan. He's been drawn to security and policing jobs since he moved here, after working as a translator for the U.S. military. Getting his officer certification will help with that path. The pay is good, the benefits are good. For the most part, people like you, people like what you do uh, for as long as you do the right thing. Do you feel like that's still true? I think that's still true, yeah. Ahmed Zai was raised in Kabul, the youngest of five children. He says he has no real memories of his childhood, which was marred by violence. I, I was born when we had war. I was raised during war, went to school during war, graduated, we still had war. Started working, we still had war. So yeah, I'm basically a product of war. He likes that in America, law enforcement is largely run locally, not by the federal government. This is a departure from Afghanistan, but ultimately, policing may be a means to an end for Ahmedzai. He says he's already looking at graduate programs in intelligence. There are, there are tons of other things that you can do. Like, that's what I, when I talk to some of my classmates, the other cadets, like, I'm not dying to become a police officer. You're not? No. If I will apply, if they don't give me a job, then I'm going to move on. For Jay Obera, policing is definitely not just a job. Obera spent several years after college struggling to figure out what to do with his life thinking about it, and praying about it. The time that really struck me was when my pastor, just unprompted one day, very encouraging, he goes, Jay, I can see you being a police officer. I think you'd be an incredible police officer. And that was where I was like, okay, I'm hearing something. I'm, I'm getting something here. Law enforcement, he says, is a calling. 
Obera, a CU Boulder grad who currently works at a sprinkler company, wants to find a job at a place where training is respected. He realizes the power officers have to affect lives. And he says he's humbled by that. What we've been told so many times by instructors is true. 98% of cops out there are trying their best and tr- want to do the right thing. 1% of them are lazy dirtbags that just kind of need to be fired to put behind a desk. And 1% of them are, should be in jail. Obera has high aspirations. He could see himself running a department someday. But for now... I want to be a cop and do cop stuff. After 10 months of night classes and Saturday classes, and a few weekends of sweaty palms driving, these cadets and their classmates finally graduated last week. You know the material, you will pass the exam. And we have taught you everything you need to know. On paper, there isn't a lot that connects Obera, Hainonen, Ahmedzai, and Ramirez. Academy organizers say that's actually the way it should be in a healthy police force. Different people with different backgrounds and various personalities drawing on their own strengths to try and help the people who call them. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And again, Allison's in our studio. Let's wrap up by talking about what's next for these graduates. What is their path from here? Well, they had to pass the post-certification test. That's the police officer standards and training. Um, They just took that. All but one of them passed in the class I was following. Um, And then the rest of them are now, they're all applying for jobs around the state. Mm. You know, Commerce City, Frederick, Fort Collins, Aurora. Some of them have jobs already. Some are applying for some rural sheriff's departments. Um, A lot of them are in the interview process. But, you know, I want to talk about Victor Ramirez. Uh, He just got hired at the Boulder Police Department. He was in my stories. And at graduation, I got to ask him how he was feeling about it all. I can't put it into words how excited I am. It's it's almost surreal. Like, there's a moment where I'm like, oh, I'm never, this is going to go on forever and ever. And then it finally ends. And it's, it's a relief. It's not a bad thing. You know, it's a good feeling. What is the job market like for new officers? It's decent right now. There's a big officer shortage across the state. About three quarters of Colorado agencies reported a shortage of full-time officers last year. Mm. So for these students, if they've passed the post-test, they'll have a leg up from a regular college graduate. What most surprised you about this reporting? You know, I guess I talk to a lot of law enforcement officers in the course of this job. I have coffee with them. I see them out on scenes. And they're all a little down right now. Even the ones who are sanguine about making police forces better are just kind of tired. And these young cadets aren't. You know, they have been they don't have that beaten down feeling yet. They're cautious, especially as I mentioned about being sued. None of them have a lot of money sitting around, but they're so excited to get out there to help people, to do cop stuff, you know, to quote Jay. And I guess maybe we should all just hang out with people who are about to start new jobs more often. It's refreshing. (laughs) Allison, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry taking us inside her reporting on aspiring police officers. They've just graduated from the program at the Community College of Aurora. You can find those stories and pictures to go along with at CPR.org. Mobile home parks are seeing an infusion of cash from real estate investors. In response, residents have teamed up, invoking a new state law to try to buy the communities themselves, But it doesn't always work. Here's CPR's Andrew Kenny. Daryl Kettles was not surprised in the end by what happened to Hickory Village. Uh, I don't know. I've had my theories from the very beginning as to how things were going to work 
Kettles is the manager of Hickory Village. It's one of the largest mobile home parks in Fort Collins. On an evening this summer, he had just learned that it was almost certainly going to be sold. And he was disappointed. Just because I don't like big companies. And it's a big company that'll be making the purchase on the property. Everyone had known since spring that a sale was pending. But until just a few minutes earlier, the residents had thought that they might change the future. They had thought that they could stop the sale with their own offer of more than $20 million. But it wasn't enough. I think it's just been a long, drawn-out process. A lot of misinformation given here and there. That's Bill Fulbright. He's a bright-eyed, kind of rascally 70-year-old who had been working for months on this plan to create a resident-owned community under the power of a new state law. What ultimately happened showed just how tough it can be to try to save affordable housing in Colorado. It had all started back in May. Uh, we got a flyer stuck to our door uh, saying that the park was up for had been sold for $23 million, and 90 days from now, it would be done. Hickory Village has stood on the north side of Fort Collins for nearly half a century. Its trees have grown tall, and its residents have upgraded and adorned their lots with fences and landscaping and even some stucco walls. Fulbright had his home hauled in. It stands nearly 1,500 square feet. I mean, it's uh, vaulted ceilings. It's three bedrooms, two baths. Uh, Way more than what a single old man needs, but it sure is nice. He's lived in Hickory Village for 37 years. That's not unusual in a place like this. Residents may stay for decades because mobile homes represent some of the last supplies of truly affordable housing. But in recent years, these communities have faced some dramatic changes. Here's Fort Collins Council Member Emily Francis. We saw this year three mobile home parks um, in Larimer County, um, pretty close to Fort Collins, go up for sale. And we haven't seen that in a decade. And we had three within three months of each other. There's something else new, too. Parks like Hickory Village aren't necessarily being redeveloped into something new. They're often just changing ownership to large national companies that, according to their critics, want to raise rents and exploit a source of guaranteed profits. Especially when you know that your residents don't have a lot of options and that they'll stay there. In mobile home parks, renters often own the structures themselves, but they're expensive or impossible to move, putting residents at the whims of their landlords. So when Fulbright got that notice, he was worried. Mentally, I went through the process of saying, darn. (laughs) But the residents did have an option. Colorado lawmakers passed a bill in 2020 that says that park owners have to notify residents of a potential sale and give them 90 days to try to beat the offer on the table. With the help of a nonprofit called Thistle, hundreds of residents met to discuss their options. More than 60% of the park's lot renters agreed to pay $25 each to join a new cooperative and try to buy the place. When you have a community that is involved in owning, you actually do have a community instead of just a group of residents. And to me, that is highly important. Meanwhile, Thistle was working on arranging financing. It's part of a nationwide network that lines up lower-interest loans with help from foundations and investors. The cooperative eventually agreed to take those loans and make an offer of $23.1 million, which they would pay off by increasing their own rents. We figured if he's got an offer already, we should offer him a little more, make it worth his time. But the owner hadn't been entirely transparent. It turned out that he hadn't disclosed the full selling price. 
The residents had to get a lawyer involved and prepare a new offer. That set the whole process back. And as the weeks dragged on, attendance at those community meetings started to drop. Each time we lost about 30% of the people that came the time before. I was visiting on a really important day. The board was having one last meeting to see if they actually had the support to keep going with the offer. If they didn't, Thistle said it would have to move on to the dozens of other communities facing sales. Fulbright was still hopeful. Walking around the park that day, he was making plans for how he'd pay the higher rent if they made the purchase. Yeah, I might need a little second job if we buy the place for a while, but two or three years from now, I won't need that because everything will be paid off. But when the meeting finally came, only three people attended. Fulbright, a friend, and the park manager. Fulbright knew that it was over. It will be whatever it is. There's, <laughs> you don't have a lot of options. They'll come in, they'll tell you what they want to do, and, you know, business is business. You know that they're in it to make money. And so whatever they do here will be to make money. The national company, Haven Park, closed on the property two months later for $23.3 million, only $200,000 more than what the residents had offered. It's always, you know, David versus Goliath in these situations, right? Um, It's, you know, dealing with these, you know, venture capitalists that have just a lot of cash and equity from a lot of different partners that, um, you know, it's always difficult to compete with. That's Andy Cadlick, the program director for the nonprofit that tried to put the deal together. The previous and new owners of the park did not return requests for comment. Cadlick hopes that amendments to the state's new opportunity to purchase law could at least force owners to be more transparent so that residents have more power in a negotiation that's already stacked against them. People just got really tired and just got really uh, maybe doubtful of the opportunity for success there. In Hickory Village, Fulbright's not sure if he'll stick around. I won't have any obligations to stay as a part of the community necessarily. I'd like to get somewhere where I can lock in a monthly payment. I can't do it in Fort Collins. I don't have enough money saved up. And he's not sure where that place that he could afford might be. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. And tomorrow, Andy heads to a community that is making the resident-owned model a reality. You can read all the stories in our special report on Colorado's housing crisis at CPR.org. A recycling truck in space could solve a growing problem, trash in Earth's orbit, junk that threatens everything from GPS satellites to the space station. Last week, U.S. Space Force announced a plan to promote manufacturing and recycling in space. And that is an opportunity for Denver-based Cislunar Industries, which is working on space recycling. Gary Kalnan is co-founder and CEO. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And space recycling was the topic of a recent symposium at the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. Its director is Dr. Angel Abud Madrid. And doctor, welcome back to the show. Hello, Ryan. Good morning. Good to be here. So Angel, space junk is usually portrayed as a problem. You see it as an opportunity. How so? Absolutely. Uh this this junk that is floating in space for more than 60 years is, is part of some rockets, satellites, nuts and bolts. And, and what's bad about it is that they're flying at thousands of miles uh, per hour and they can become a problem, like you said, for all of our space assets. Uh, DOD is tracking 25,000 of these pieces that are bigger than a softball. 
There's half a million of their marble size. So you have two choices. Uh, just like you have, or like Coloradians have every week when you pull your trash containers to the curbside. You can either get a hold of that material and send it back to Earth and burn them there, uh, or you can put it on the recycling container in which we can obtain the, the, the important metals like aluminum and titanium and, and, and chromium and everything else that you can use for manufacturing, for tools, as a propellant. And so uh, that... Uh, that is the, the, the big use of, of recycling in space, and, uh, and that's what this concept is all about. Well, it's fascinating to think of this as a propellant. I mean, I think when uh, I think of recycling, of turning it into other machinery, but this could be a fuel, you're saying. It could be, it could be fuel, and, and Gary can explain what uh, he's trying to do with that, or it could be parts that can be used to manufacture things in space so you don't have to send it from Earth, which costs thousands and thousands of dollars. You can use it to create new satellites or, 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 or tools or whatever it's needed in space against to, to cut our dependence from sending things from Earth. Yeah, just to help people understand, anytime you send something into space, that's payload, and that requires fuel. So if you can harness stuff that's already up there, you are telling us that that's a savings, right? When you look at any rocket in a launch pad, 90% of that rocket, I don't care which one it is, is fueled mm. just to send that 10% into space, which is your satellite or your probe, whatever it is. So there's a lot of energy that takes into putting things into space. Just to put things into low Earth orbit, which is just three, 200 kilometers above us, it costs uh, anywhere from uh, uh, $5,000 to $10,000 a pound. And so that's a lot of money. So why not use what's already there? And that's the whole concept behind space resources. Live off the land, use whatever you have up there. All right, Gary, CisLunar is developing the technology to recycle metal in orbit, potentially making it fuel as we'll hear. But I guess I'm interested first off in all the things your company won't do. What are the steps in recycling that you're going to let other firms handle? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, yeah, so you know, if you think about the recycling process, you you know, at a, at a high level, you need the trucks to go out and get get the stuff you're going to recycle, right? You need uh, a place to put the factory that's going to do the recycling, the real estate, if you will. Um, and then, of course, you need the trucks to deliver the end goods to go to a potential customer. Um, so, you know, what we're not going to do is we're not going to be the trucking companies. There's a number of companies out there that are working on spacecraft that can go out and retrieve this debris. Um, one of the Colorado-based companies, Astroscale, even did a recent demonstration where they showed, um, you know, a test of, of some of the technology to do that. Uh, and and then we we need other companies to provide the platforms for us to put this on. This space station is what most people might think of, but we sort of think of it as just real estate in, in space um, where we can host our factory. So we are only doing the processing piece of the puzzle. We're not doing the trucks and we're not doing the real estate. Okay, you're doing the factory. I'm just curious, uh, even though this is not your area of expertise, where would the factory be located? So you said some sort of space station, just to help us understand what it's sitting on. Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of companies um, that recently announced several that are, are working on different kinds of commercial operated space stations. Mm -hmm. So kind of like the ISS that you see up there right now, but probably you know smaller and specifically built for the purpose of manufacturing. They may not even have people on board. It might be purely robotic. And this is just a structure that floats in space. Think of it as like a larger satellite um, that is built to to host or to to uh, have other payloads or other um, companies things on there, 
And we would want to be on one of those. And they might be in a variety of different orbits in space. And really, they'll be wherever it makes sense to put them, wherever there's a business case to have them. Hmm. Okay, because there could be many of them uh, oh, in, yeah. in orbit. Okay, well, how do you recycle in space? What are the, some of the challenges? I, I mean, energy has to be one of them, right? Yeah, that's a common thing people think. They think of like an aluminum smelting plant and you see, you know, <laughs> giant vats of molten metal and, you you know, megawatts of power that are used to create that. Um, and, and that's not really the case here. You know, we're talking about a small scale system uh, that only needs one kilowatt of power, which is well below the threshold for, you know, all the planned space stations that, that are um, uh, coming up soon. And, uh, you know, it each one kilowatt of power can actually produce around 13 tons of, of material based on our, our estimates so far of, of processed metals and materials. Um, so you don't need as much power as you might think uh, to, to melt this thing down. And we can get that power from solar arrays, just from solar panels. Okay. Well, what what is the process if it's not a kind of melty earthbound factory process? Right. So So it is a melting process. Um, it's definitely easier to see than to describe on radio, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but essentially what we're using is electricity. Uh, it's called an induction heater. And it creates a, a magnetic field, which, which um, causes that metal to heat up. A little bit like an induction stove works by causing your pan to heat up. Totally. Um, and, and, and so it does that. It creates uh, that, that capability in, in the metal that you're trying to melt. So we are melting it. We're using electricity to melt it, and those magnetic fields also help to control um, the metal while it's being melted. I, I guess I think of space as very cold. Are you up against that? Yeah, interestingly, um, it, it is helpful in some ways because you want to be able to take all that heat that you're creating and get rid of it. You know, you don't want to heat up the device that you're melting it in, right? Yeah, right. Um, so we need that. It's also kind of a challenge in some ways because, as it turns out, a vacuum is one of the most insulating things out there. If you think of your, you know, your thermos, a vacuum thermos, it has a vacuum barrier, and that's what allows it to keep the heat in or the cold in. Uh, depending on what you have in there. So, um, you know, in our case, we can use it to our advantage uh, and we can, and it's also a challenge. So it, it kind of poses both sides. I'm just curious how long it would take to get a solid, you know, metal object melted in space. Is that a couple of minutes? Is that hours, days? It's more like minutes. It's more like minutes. Oh. We can do um, one and a half kilograms, which is, let's see, that's about, uh, let's see, one and a half kilograms is about three pounds of uh, finished rods per hour. And we're making these metal rods um, out of this recycled material as one of our first products. Um, and that's and that's what can be used as propellant and also for other manufacturing processes. Yeah, let's talk more about what you are recycling this into. So a metal rod, that's something that is handy in space. Help us understand that. Sure. So one of the first things that's, that it's handy for and why we picked this form factor is propellant. Um, and there's a company called Newman Space out of Australia, and they've innovated this new version of uh, what's called a pulsed plasma thruster, which is very technical, but um, it's really an electric-based uh, propulsion system. And, and we can it can use metal as the propellant, as the rocket fuel, if you will. It's not burning it, but it's using it as the propellant to make the craft move forward. And the, and the energy for that is coming from electricity. Um, so we can use that. And what's really interesting about that is that all these operations to go out and collect debris um, can be fueled by the debris itself. We only oh. need a small fraction of that debris 
to actually give enough propellant to those spacecraft to allow them to go out and get the debris and bring it back to the platform where it can be recycled. So that's just an added use in the recycling. You fuel those trucks gathering the material with some of the material that they'd be gathering. I see that now. Yeah. It's, and, like, it's like if you drove your trash trucks with the trash that they were collecting and only some of it. <laughs> well put. Uh, on Hell, you see a lot of startups that want to tap space resources. What differentiates a wild idea from one that has real potential? And, and where does space recycling fit in on the spectrum from wild to real potential? Yeah, these days, uh, there's an explosion of companies that are working on, uh, on, on in space. It's not just the large aerospace companies, but a lot of startups and medium companies and companies that were not associated with aerospace before. We have hmm. mining companies, equipment manufacturers that are interested in on, on how to utilize resources in space. And so the, 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 the companies that are making it, the ones that have real business plans, are the ones that are, first of all, connecting the applications in space also to terrestrial applications. And they can, uh, at, at the beginning, just have these ideas incorporated into what's done here on Earth at the same time that they're developing these things for space. And those are the ones that can have the initial capital to then start moving to more uh, advanced ideas for space. And, and, and it is happening. And, and Colorado, by the way, has become the, the hub of this company that are moving into to, to the state to do this. And, mm. and it's very encouraging to see that. I wonder if either of you gentlemen um, think about how much pollution there is uh, on our own planet, uh, and I realize this is part of our planet, right, because we're talking about in our orbit, but um, whether all of this energy ought to be spent on, you know, the oceans or climate change, something like that. And, and I know this is a question that people in space often face, you know, focus on, on, on Earth. Uh, well, how do you answer that for yourself, Gary? Yeah, well, for me, I see the 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 buildup of this capability in space. What we see as a, a new industrial revolution actually happening in space, as personally as the only way for humanity to have a truly abundant and uh, expanding future of capabilities, technologies, and really prosperity for all human beings. So, to me, that's one of the driving reasons to go into space to try to create systems to enable humanity to go out into space, to live on a sustainable basis beyond space and have the resources that are in space because that benefits Earth. It benefits Earth with technology. We use space, I mean, most people don't realize how many times right after you even get up that you're using space. <laughs> so we're dependent upon space. Um, and this is one way to, to make that better, to, to you know open this future for humanity. That's how I look at it. In just the last few seconds on hell, I, I want to note that Orbital Prime, no relation to Amazon, is a new program from the U.S. Space Force to promote assembly and manufacturing in space that includes recycling as a way to reduce space junk. Uh, in just a few seconds, does, does the government buy-in, supercharge this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, okay. government uh, in the military is, all, is very interested on, on having structures in space. Think about in the future how you can use those structures to beam solar power to Earth and provide us with all the energy that we need here in space. So that's that's uh, pr providing manufacturing and construction in space is quite important. And let mm. me add one thing. Yeah, Ryan, very, very briefly, in just a few seconds. Yeah, just like resources made Colorado possible in 1859, 
So these resources on Earth, natural or space debris, will will push our aerospace industry, our extractive industry, equipment manufacturers uh, to create the new technologies, jobs, and the new economy in space, which is much higher than one mile above sea level. And that, Ryan, matters to Colorado. Angel Abud Madrid directs the Center for Space Resources at Mines in Golden. Gary Kalman, CEO and co-founder of Cis Lunar Industries, a space recycling company in Denver. When we come back, the day they broke the sound barrier in rock and roll. More reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just a few of the improvements to the CPR app. If you already use the app, you'll need to update to the new version on your phone or tablet. And get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023. Everywhere you go. The new CPR app. Search for Colorado Public Radio in the Apple App Store or in Google Play. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And one of rock and roll's greatest songs turns 50 today. There's a lady who's sure All it glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to heaven When she gets there she knows If the stores are all closed With a word she can get what she came for And she's buying a stairway Led Zeppelin's eight-minute epic Stairway to Heaven. Just three years prior, the British band made their North American debut right here in Colorado. They weren't even the main attraction, but the opener at the Denver Auditorium Arena, December 26, 1968. In a new biography, author Bob Spitz writes, the ear-splitting roar that Led Zeppelin put out in Denver announced to an unsuspecting audience that rock and roll was about to break through the sound barrier. Spitz describes the truckload of amps that surrounded Zeppelin on stage as ominous black beasts with blinking red eyes that resembled Darth Vader and sounded like the Titan space missile blasting off overhead. He goes on, as they launched into their opening number, Good Times, Bad Times, kids in the front rows literally ducked for cover. Let's listen to my 2018 discussion with longtime music journalist G. Brown about that North American debut in 68. How does Led Zeppelin end up playing in Denver the day after Christmas? The booking agent called Barry Fay, the local rock promoter, and asked if he could put this band on the bill. Fay had already sold out the show that was headlined by Vanilla Fudge and Spirit, two icons of the time. 
So Faye declined. Guy said, please, you know, these guys are going to be huge. $500. Faye acquiesced. And the rest is history. That is Led, Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin was paid $500 for this appearance? And not even printed on the tickets because they were <laughs> added as an afterthought. <laughs> totally under the radar. If you read Rolling Stone uh, when it was an underground mag at the time just being launched, you might have known that uh, this was the new Yardbirds, if you will. Uh, the Yardbirds, a great British rock band that grew guitar players. Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck were in their ranks at one period. Jimmy Page was the third guitarist hmm. and he was just trying to reset. Keith Moon, the legend has it, the great drummer of the Who said it would go over like a lead balloon and it was then a <laughs> uh, short extrapolation to become Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, I have to say one of the best band names in history as far as I'm concerned. It always conjures up such a specific image in my head. I don't mean to date you here, G, but you were 14 when this show happened. <laughs> well, you just did. I, uh, yeah, it's not my intention though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did you get to go to this show? Oh, no. It, w- it was the day after Christmas, December 26th, yep. and that was uh, not going to fly at the household. I got to see him then shortly afterwards when I had a friend who was old enough to have a driver's license. But you were cool enough at 14 to have heard of Led Zeppelin and wanted to go? I had read about this new configuration, yeah. yes. Wow. And uh, yeah, what an amazing time. We talk about it being the day after Christmas. That was a huge thing for Robert Plant, the lead singer. He was 20 at the time. Page had been through the ranks and mm-hmm. played arenas before, but uh, Robert was 20 years old. And as he told me, being away from home at Christmas for the British is the end of the world. Uh, you know, So for him to be traveling on this side of the earth was... Uh, Uh, an astounding feat for him. And so he remembered that first show in Denver when you spoke with him? Uh, Very much. Uh, His biggest memory was that he couldn't believe that the promoter could charge for the backstage catering, (laughs) bill it back to the band. (laughs) (laughs) Barry Faye was very shrewd, I suppose. Uh, When did you finally see them live for the first time? Because it wasn't that first concert. It was uh, about two years afterwards. Uh, They played the Denver Coliseum. When Zeppelin played that first show, they didn't even have an album out yet. Um, It had been recorded earlier that year, I think, but wasn't released until January of 69. The set list on that first American tour, though, included some of their soon-to-be hits, like Dazed and Confused. So long, it's not true. Wanted a woman, never bargained for you. Lots of people talking, few of them know. Soul of a woman was created below. So the Rocky Mountain News critic called the music gutsy, unified, inventive. How did Denver audiences receive Led Zeppelin? By all accounts, Led Zeppelin made quite the impression. Uh, This was a sea change. This was the end of that year. But earlier, the Stones had launched the first big rock tour where previously it was pop bands playing their hits. 
filling theaters with shrieking teenagers. These were the first shows where musicianship was at the fore. People mm. got to stretch out. They had the lighting and amplification that the venues deserved. And so you got Jimmy Page taking a bow to his guitar strings and uh, doing this amazing solo. And John Bonham, the drummer, doing Moby Dick, playing with his hands as well as his sticks for well into double figures in minutes. Do I hear you saying that the musicianship became more important than the aesthetics in a way? It was the first time that people got a chance to see how musicianly these folks were, right? I mean, instead of just coming out and doing a cavalcade of hit singles, they got to stretch out and created rock culture as we know it. Brown runs the Colorado Music Experience. We spoke in 2018 about Led Zeppelin's first show in North America in Denver. The band's masterpiece, Stairway to Heaven, was released 50 years ago. Thanks to former producer Alexandra McMahon for that story, and thanks to our team today. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London and Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the pie.